This episode of Light Source is brought to you by Squarespace.com. For fast, easy publishing of a professional website, check out photographers.squarespace.com slash ls. And when you sign up, use the promo code LS1 to receive a 10% discount. Thanks for listening to StudioLighting.net. You're listening to Light Source. Welcome to episode 62 of LightSource, the official podcast of StudioLighting.net, the website introducing photographers to portrait and studio lighting equipment and techniques. I'm Bill Crawford, publisher. And I'm Ed Hidden, exclusive photographer with iStockPhoto.com. On today's episode, we have an interview with James from PhotoAssistant.net. As the website is actually now www.1profoto.com. That's the number one, profoto.com. And we're going to talk with him about being an assistant and finding work as an assistant and uh, a little bit about his website and what he has to offer for people that think that they might want to go that route. And we've talked with a couple photo assistants in the past and um, we get a little bit of a different perspective from James and kind of gives you an idea of where you might want to go if, if that's the path that you want to pursue. So it was, uh, it was kind of interesting talking to him. Yeah. And James has a great community built up around his website and the network and the training that he does. So we thought it'd be good just to kind of expose folks to that side of things again. Every once in a while, we like to drop in on the different subcultures around the photography industry. So and especially as a lot of photographers that we talk to, you know, they get their start doing photo assisting. So it's uh, becoming a member of his community and getting into their database and things like that. It kind of gets you hooked up with the networking that gives you that little boost step forward to, to becoming a full-time photographer yourself. So definitely something worth checking out. Yeah. Before we get into that, there's some news going on. Uh, it looks like Adobe re-released their update to Adobe Camera Raw and to Lightroom. So if you have the cameras that were in the update that they rolled back to, you can go ahead and get that update now from Adobe.com. Yeah, that was one of those things where I mixed down the episode where we announced the update and logged on to my newsreader and realized that they've recalled it. <laughs> I was like, I'm not re-editing that show. <laughs> Well, you, you kind of got to watch for those things because sometimes, you know, bugs do creep up. And it was nice that they actually pulled it instead of leaving it out there and just letting something buggy out there. So at least they corrected it, moved on. So right. that's where they are now with it. Lightroom 2. Lightroom 2. Yeah, Lightroom 2 is out in beta. Loving that. We haven't talked about that yet. Sorry, I jumped ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been playing with it a little bit. Have you downloaded it? And yes, I have. I like it. They finally added a couple of the features that I really, really wanted out of Lightroom. One of them being in the print module. I've tried to do some prints where I didn't want to do two columns by three rows. And I'm really excited to see that you can actually take and make something where you could do two five by sevens on one and like a couple four by sixes on the next row and kind of shuffle things up. So that's a big feature I think that they've needed. Very cool. One of the other ones that I like is the ability to output your images from the print module the JPEG. So if you put your identity that you have stored within Lightroom over top of your image, you can actually export that as a JPEG without having to do any of these Lightroom, Morgrify plugins or things like that that you'd have to, to use currently to get that sort of output out of Lightroom. Now they've just go ahead and built like a print to JPEG option, which is really, really cool. That is cool. That would come in handy for a lot of things. 
some people are using them as print to JPEG to send things out to their labs. Right. Uh, I see a lot of cool things coming down the pike of people doing different stuff in the way that they output for maybe they're putting captions along the bottom of an image and then putting a watermark in the bottom in the other corner of the image and positioning them and then just outputting them for online display or things like that. So right. I'm, I'm kind of excited to play with that a bit more. My favorite feature is multiple monitor support because I'm a huge multiple <laughs> monitor kind of guy and having the live loop view is the coolest. I was reading that. It looks like it was really cool. I'm, I'm not to the point of doing duels. Well, on the primary monitor, you have the normal Lightroom layout, but then on the right side, it can follow your mouse zoomed in. So, oh, that's really so yeah, it, just, it comes in handy. Good stuff. Yeah, it definitely makes a much better use, I think, of the dual monitors setup. I didn't work with dual monitors in the in Lightroom 1, so I don't know how that would work, but it definitely sounded like it was a, a cool option. No doubt. Well, I've been reading some more of the Joe McNally book, The Moment It Clicks, right. and one thing that's really been catching me that I, I think is hilarious and I've been kind of keeping it in the back of my mind is he talks a lot about shooting with available light. And I think we've talked about it on the show as well. Mm-hmm. You know what Joe's definition of available light is? Whatever's available. Exactly. (laughs) Any asterisk colon pound sign light that's available. I think is what the book says. So with that in mind, I have actually pulled my speed light out of my camera bag and I've been using it a bit lately. Awesome. I'm really excited about it because I kinda stuck it aside and hadn't touched it for a while. Dare I say I'm going the strobist route again? Well, David Hobby would be proud of you right now. Well, I, I, I think I'm kind of leaning more towards the Joe McNally route where it's like, you know, I'm using whatever I have available and whatever is easiest to use and whatever tool is going to get the job done doesn't necessarily need to be from my studio. It just, it just has to work. Yeah, I had the same experience last fall when I started doing some senior portraits. And one example was the senior wanted to have his photos taken in the middle of the woods. And <laughs> I wasn't going to lug all of my lighting equipment out into the middle of the woods for, yeah, with a vagabond and yeah, all that kind of for stuff. two or three shots out of this whole session so i grabbed my battery powered flashes and headed for the woods just kind of depends on what you're after i think it's since i just i shot a wedding the other weekend and you know, i wasn't gonna be lugging alien bees around the reception and stuff like that so uh sure neil i'm not doing the neil kelly yeah. <laughs> yeah. well kind of on those lines i've been doing a little reading and saw that honel photo that's h-o-n-l-b-h-o-t-o has a cool little speed grid set up that they're going to be making for portable flash units. They look really, really cool. Did you see did You see the link that I sent you? I did see the link, and I think those are way cool. I find myself reaching for grids way more. Like, the more that I know about light, the more I want to control it that way. So this is a, a great little thing to try. I'm really excited to see more people using these. And I mean, the price looks really right on them. It says like $25. Shipping's going to start sometime in April. Of course, we're into April now, and I don't think that they're quite shipping yet. But now I'm excited to see some more examples. It might be something that will end up in my camera bag. Yeah, it's one of those pieces of gear that fits easily into your bag, and it's good to have when you're in that one situation where you need it. Speaking of what's in your camera bag, if you go to www.flickr.com slash group slash light source, our previous guest on our show, Scarpati, started a really cool thread called What's in Your Gaffer Shortlist and talks about what goes in your, your gaffer bag or your gadget bag and what do you take with you to every shoot. And he starts his list and people have been contributing about what they like to carry with them and, and their little their goodie bag for when they go on a shoot and it's been a really cool discussion seeing everyone 
talking about different things and I, I see a couple OMGs listed here by different <laughs> people's posts and uh, yeah, everyone's kind of sharing what, what little secrets and tricks and stuff they have in their physical bag of tricks with them. Yeah, I think that's a great thread. I love this kind of exchange. It's one thing that our forum's really good for. Definitely check that out. You can find information everywhere about different lighting, different lenses, and different camera bodies. But you know, when it gets down to the nitty gritty of like how to take a clothespin and flip it around backwards, that sort of stuff's kind of cool. That is way cool. Well, before we get into the interview, we also need to talk about our assignment, the light source assignment. And it's our inaugural one. And, well, we have a, um, <sighs> a trickle of photos that have come in. Yeah, man, I don't know. You guys are letting us down a little bit. <laughs> I think I picked the hard one for this one. You think it was the assignment? I don't know. Somebody emailed us and said, don't be so hard on yourself, guys. The assignment <laughs> was fine. But I think maybe we should give them a little bit more time. Do you think that would help? I think that'd be good. We'll extend this one through the rest of April. You know, spring's coming around the corner, so I mean, there might be, you know, there's April showers, spring's May flowers, you know, there's all kinds of little <laughs> things coming out. There you go. Okay, we'll do that. We'll say you have a little bit of an extension for you guys that haven't gotten any images in the assignment pool yet, and then we'll come out with a new one on the first of the month. We'll get on that cycle. Yeah, that'll be nice. And then it'll be a little easier for people to remember because we'll just we'll stick with it for the, the first of the months is when we'll we'll switch over to whatever the new um, the new theme will be. But for the nine of you guys or seven or eight of you guys that <laughs> submitted images, I, I think there's some really creative stuff in there so far. See, if you haven't looked at these images, you got to check it out. Yeah, it looks like we have back on the wagon, juggling work, a chicken in every pot, uh, cooking pizza, time is money. There's a bunch of them. Yeah, there's some, definitely some really cool. I, I was a fan of, I, I just like the saying, uh, there is no try, only do. Yeah, that's a Yoda quote, isn't it? That is a Yoda quote. <laughs> Something that's like that. Favorite Yoda quotes. So yeah, keep them coming, and hopefully we'll give you guys another week or so. We'll see some more action. Cool. I guess that's really about it for the news for this episode. Wow. We'll pop in here to this interview with James from One Pro Photo and talking about photo assistance, and we'll see you guys next time. And on this edition of The Light Source, we have with us this evening James Sullivan, the webmaster of photoassistant.net, and he has built a community around the photo assistant field, and you've been a photo assistant for about six years now. Yeah, six you're going to talk with us this evening about what it's like to be a photo assistant and some of the different roles and some of the technology behind some of that stuff. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. How did you get started with doing photo assistant and getting into photography? Well, I'd actually studied photography in Chicago years ago. And right before I was going to graduate, I quit the photography school and started studying music. I had a classical voice for five years, was in and out of several bands. And uh, to support my music habit while I was in Boston, I started working in photo labs, ran E6, C41, black and white, taught myself Cibachrome printing, printed black and white and uh, color printing, high prints. From there, I just, at a party one night, I met this guy who was a photo assistant, and I was like, well, what's a photo assistant? What do you do? And he's like, well, I work two to three days a week, and the rest of the time I go out and take pictures. I thought this was an amazing opportunity. <laughs> You know, work two, three days a week, party the rest of the time. I couldn't find anyone to give me information on how to do it, so I just picked up the yellow pages and went and called the first guy that was listed under commercial photographer, and his phone had been disconnected. <laughs> and so I called the second guy, 
and talked to him, and he invited me over at his studio. We talked for about an hour, and he uh, booked me for a day of work with no experience two days later. Basically, what I came to find is that going to fine arts photo school, which is what I did at Columbia College in Chicago, was nice if you wanted to be a fine arts photographer and make beautiful prints in the darkroom. But in the world of commercial photography, you need to get out there and work with the photographers who are doing it every day. Because what you learn in school, it, it's a different world. The reality is that in commercial photography, it's not about taking pretty pictures. It's about taking pictures of a product that will sell. It's sales and marketing. And the longer I've been in this industry, the more that becomes obvious. If you can sneak in some artistic flair or something creative, that gives you a leg up on everybody else. Right. The reality is it's, it's sales and marketing. So this guy hired me. I pushed myself to learn lighting. I gave myself the project of learning to see light as well as I could hear or had taught myself to hear every part of an orchestra and music school. Hmm. And this old school photographer who I luckily got a chance to work with, I think it was like during my second or third year of assisting in Boston, and his name was Al Fisher. And he had worked for some uh, great old photographers. And I learned more in six hours from this guy <laughs> than any combination of photographers that I worked with for the first six years wow. uh, of assisting. It's so rare to find someone that is willing to just pass along every bit of information they have. Just open the books and it's there, take it. This guy did it, and he did it in six hours. And it just, <laughs> from that point on, everything just clicked. It all made sense. And it made my transition from moving from Boston to New York City that much easier because in New York, as well as in most major markets, a lot of times it's all about the show. Everyone wants to be on the fashion shoots and everyone wants to be on those big money advertising shoots. But the reality is, if you don't know what you're doing, if you don't have experience, if you don't have traditional photography skills, regardless of whether you're shooting digital or film, you're lost and you're just another body on the second in the way. When I started assisting, it was not uncommon for me to be the only assistant, so I'm setting up lights, humping equipment, uh, marking film, loading cameras, you know, schmoozing the clients if necessary. So sometimes it's you and the photographer, and I've been on fashion shoots where there were six photo assistants and 15 grips from a film company doing the lighting. Wow. It's, it's a madhouse. Coming to New York, I actually moved here in 94. I came here with $1,800 and two backpacks. I was here for five days, and in that time, I'd sent out 350 resumes, wow. made 150 phone calls, and again, on the fifth day, I had my first day of work, and I didn't stop working until after my daughter was born two and a half years later. I kept busy. You know, I, I initially thought, you know, coming to New York, I was going to have the opportunity to work with some of the best photographers in the world. And truth be told, from day one, I came to find that I was working with some of the best photo assistants in the world. It's assumed that all these famous photographers, great photographers that we've, we've known through the ages are technically proficient, they do all their lighting. The reality is that only a handful of the big-name photographers actually touch any of the equipment. The vast majority of them, except a few, I have to say, have no idea how to light. Really? <laughs> no. There are people like that, and they make millions of dollars. And there are the people that are out in your audience that are working their fingers to the bone to try and make that perfect shot. It doesn't always mean that you're going to be successful. Well, now, you kind of said that you started to realize that you were working with the best photo assistants out there. What? Mm -hmm. Let's just take a step back for a second and just define for our audience 
maybe some of the different roles that would you find on a commercial shoot? You'd have a digital tech, a, a photo assistant proper. Can you kind of just lay out the scene a little bit before we get into what everybody would do? And Well, ideally, you've got a photographer, one or two photo assistants, and a digital tech. The digital tech, I think, is really underrated these days. And to some degree, that's because there's too many people thinking that they can just stand in front of a computer and uh, copy files off of a CF card into a folder on the desktop of your Mac, and they consider themselves a digital tech. In reality, a digital technician is the replacement for the photo labs. They now accept the responsibility that we used to hand off when we sent our film to be processed overnight because they're bringing those images in. The good digital techs are checking every other image or every fifth image to, to make sure it's it's in focus. They're watching the images as they come in to make sure that the strobes are going off, you know, because not every photo assistant is able to do all the tasks of me on the set, watching the strobes, watching the photographer. So that digital tech also takes on a little bit of a role of a photo assistant. They then, after they've got the images in, they have to communicate with the photographer about the quality of the images. Do we have to change the exposure? Is the color temperature correct? If the color temperature isn't correct, is it something that actually has to do with the lights? Perhaps maybe the bulbs are aged or the strobes are aged, uh, as opposed to saying, oh, we'll just tweak it in the color correction of the digital capture software. Right. The guy then has to, at some point during the photo shoot, talk with the art director or the client, whoever is going to make the final judgment on the images captured, and try and get them to take five minutes and start editing down what's already been captured so that when it comes time to process those files, they're not looking at 300 gigs of digital images. Right that are going to be edited sometime in the next day or two. That's one of the things that doesn't always get looked at is the process time for those images afterwards. And since the technology keeps advancing and megapixels keep increasing, those file sizes keep increasing too. So where we used to look at 90, 20, 30 megabyte files, you're now looking at files that are in the 60s and upwards of 100 megabytes wow. per image. Then you're looking at how are you going to store that stuff how are you going to transfer it to the client? Because it's certainly not going to fit on a DVD. Right. So these are all things that the high-end digital techs take into consideration, and they know how to handle this stuff. The best digital techs that I've worked with or that I know of, whether it's in New York, Miami, or L.A., they started with traditional film backgrounds. So they don't just know computers. They know cameras. They know lights. Some of the better ones I know here in New York City end up working on shoots where there's a lot of kids getting out of film school. They move to New York because they think they're going to hit the pavement and become the next Richard Avedon. And they realize within the first week that it's not going to happen. Now, because of the Internet, because of the world getting smaller, as they say, you're competing on the world stage. You're not just competing with the guys living in New York City. You're competing with the guys coming over from Germany, England, Italy, France, UK, everywhere. Everyone wants to be a fashion photographer. Or they want to be an Annie Leibovitz and do commercial or portrait photography or Mark Seliger doing Rolling Stone covers. You've got everyone from everywhere in the world coming into either New York or L.A. Right. So if you think you're going to compete and to show up and wow everybody, once you get on set, it's a completely different world because there are so many personalities that you have to learn to deal with, to adjust to, to juggle. It's like being a freshman in high school all over again. Really? <laughs> it really is. And the, the quicker you're able to adjust and acclimate, the better you're going to be. You need to be able to find a way to network, to connect with other people, to connect with other photographers, because that's how you're going to get the job. And that's really the thing. It, it's all about sales and marketing. 
regardless of whether you're a photographer or a photo assistant. I used to make it a point as an assistant to send out my resume to 150 people every three months. Mm. I'd set up my computer to, to act as a fax machine. Every Sunday night, 150 resumes go out. Monday morning, the first thing these people do when either the photographer or the studio manager walks into an office, he's got your resume right there. Right. And it was because of that that I ended up working with a 70s photographer, Marco Glaviano, called me in for an interview. And after 15 minutes of talking to his first assistant, he said, so what are you doing for the next three months? I guess I'm working for you. Nice. <laughs> so, well, I think Marco's got five minutes. I want you to meet him. He didn't have five minutes. He had three. And 15 minutes later, I was hired for a three-month photo shoot with a photographer that I'd never known. Wow other than seeing his work in magazines. And that turned into a huge adventure. Two days later, I was on the island of Stromboli, <laughs> which is a volcanic island off the coast of Italy, shooting an Italian actress for a calendar. Wow. You know, we went from there to shooting fashion in Milan for a month, back to New York for a month, then a month in South Africa for a Sports Illustrated Swimsuit edition. So jobs come along and opportunities come along simply because you've been persistent. Right. As I say in my ebook that I have on my website, How to Be a Photo Assistant, regardless of what you want to do for your personal shooting later on, the best people to learn lighting from and learn the business of commercial photography from are still life photographers, corporate portraiture guys, advertising photographers, because they teach you lighting, they teach you problem solving, and you're just going to learn this stuff simply by doing it every single day. Right. If you're just looking to work with famous photographers and work fashion, you're not going to learn anything. You've obviously been at this for a while, and you've got some really great insights into kind of how the industry works. What are some of the things that you wish you would have known when you just were first starting out as a photo assistant? Or some of the big, like, aha moments that you had? I should have moved to New York sooner. Okay. People move here because they want to challenge themselves. They want to be the best at what they do. If you move here and you're a garbage man, you're the best garbage man in the world. <laughs> if you move here and you're a cab driver, you're the best cab driver in the world. If you come here as a photo assistant or anything else in the photo industry, unless you're willing to get out of bed and give 300% every single day, don't bother. It's really all about teamwork. If, if you're coming here to you know, try and be the alpha male. New York City doesn't need any more alpha males. <laughs> the photo industry does not need any more alpha males. It needs people that are willing to work together to get the job done. Because that's really what you're there for, whether it's photo assistant, digital tech, producer. You're there to try and make sure that the photographer gets the best possible shot he can. Sometimes, if you're a seasoned assistant, you recognize the opportunity where you need to step into the photographer saying, you know what, we really need to consider this aspect or, you know, this lighting situation is not going to work for what we're trying to do. It's certainly not the first thing you do, but it's something that as you get experienced, you're going to recognize that the photographer is so caught up in something else, he may not recognize that the art director who's hanging over his shoulder is unhappy with the, with the set, is unhappy with the model doesn't like the clothes, doesn't like the last Polaroid or the last digital image that came through. And as an assistant, it's your job to be monitoring all of this stuff. There's nothing worse than getting to the end of the day and seeing the client leave unhappy. And if you say to the photographer, yeah, she didn't seem too happy about 3 o'clock. <laughs> the photographer's going to look over like, my God, why didn't you save something? We could have made a change. We could have saved it. Right. He's never going to hire you again because you probably lost him a client. Exactly. 
So just being on the ball all the time, being aware, is probably the best thing for every member of the photo crew. Makes sense. Obviously, you've been on an awful lot of sets, and one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the show is to talk a little bit about some of the, the research that you've kind of put together. For example, you you put together a really neat PDF which looked at a bunch of different power power yeah yeah, power strip packs and what the cost per watt second was and I just really Mm -hmm. thought that was a really neat way of looking at this. What have you learned about gear and what are some of the things that maybe you found everybody should have or shouldn't waste their money or time on? Do you have any thoughts like that? Yeah, the very first thing I tell everyone, especially you know people get just getting into the industry that especially the photo school students who still have good credit is don't buy rent never buy equipment unless you're in a financial position to be making money off of that investment 20 days a month if you're not making money off of your equipment for at least 20 days every month you're wasting money you've made an investment and outlaid money that you're never going to get a return on that's the only reason to go out and buy equipment now i've actually gotten that question from a lot of people here local in in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and they've asked about renting equipment and lights and so forth. Now, in New York City, I know that you don't have much of a problem with rental places. It seems like there's lots of options. Through your forum and people that you've talked to, mm-hmm. have you found that there are these types of places available throughout the country in different locations? Yeah. Editorial photographers, the guys that shoot for Business Week and some of the other publications where you're going out doing corporate portraiture work, where you're doing uh, inset shots for magazines, these guys travel all over the country, and they make a database themselves of the stores within two to 300 miles that they can get rental equipment from. A lot of times, depending on where that photographer is coming from or what major city he may be coming from, he may actually find... Well, for instance, we did a photo shoot in Moab, Utah. Some of the equipment we brought with, some of the equipment we had shipped from uh, Sammy's in L.A. out into the desert. Again, for something that huge... You've got a production coordinator, but if if you're just one guy and an assistant, it's all about pre-production and finding the best options for getting rental equipment and, you know, developing a relationship with that company so that you can place your order, have it delivered or get it picked up, and you know it's going to work every time. Obviously, not everyone is in a position to rent equipment, so if you absolutely have to make a purchase, the thing is to look at the equipment as a long-term investment. It's not about getting the biggest name or the most famous brand or something that some famous photographer is using. That's not going to do you any good. You have to think of photography equipment as tools. What tools do you need in order to get the job done? What tools are going to be the most cost-effective? If it means going out and get a Dynalite 500-watt-second pack and a couple of heads, and you can make use of that and make the best pictures in the world, then that's the absolute best investment you can make. But if you're looking at a bronze color, the Graphite uh, A4, that's 3,200-watt-seconds, that's a $10,000 pack. Right. Unless you're making so much money that you can afford that, investing in a $10,000 strobe pack is nothing more than pure ego because the thing's huge. It's a boat anchor. Right. You know, and, and it's, it's great that you can dial it down to F2 at 16 feet. I think that's beautiful. But I really don't need a $10,000 strobe pack. You could take that $10,000 and go invest it in the stock market in 18 months, make some decent money. It's foolish. Buy what you need. Light is light. Once you learn how to manipulate light, it doesn't matter whether you're using bronze-colored Dynalite or clamp-on painter's lights that you get at the hardware store for 10 15 bucks. If you can control the light, you're going to always have the best possible image you can get. 
mastering light is more important than having name brands. In the end, like I said in that article, every single strobe manufacturer uses a xenon tube. The xenon gas is the same in every glass tube. Almost every company uses Pyrex. So the only difference is the recycle time and the watt seconds that these strobe packs are putting out. I know some photographers who have built a career on using uh, Vivitar 283s and 285s and using them in uh, small soft boxes. Right. And these guys have found a way to use their tools in such a way that they can show up with two or three little soft camera bags, set up the lights, hop on the strobes, boom, 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 pop off the shots that they need, even the presidents of companies. And they just do amazing work. And it's simply because they learned to use the tools they had. That makes sense. The, the best possible thing I could have learned was using large format, 4x5, 8x10, and learning to slow down and stop pushing the button. The biggest mistake people make is blasting through film or holding down that button and, and trying to capture every, every single frame. We're still photographers. We're not filmmakers. We don't need to shoot 24 frames a second. You need to capture that one shot that you know is the one that, that you need to get. And the minute I started shooting 4x5, I was forced to preconceive everything I did. I was forced to look at my lighting situation because you don't have the luxury financially of just blasting through Polaroid until you get it, get it right. You have to be able to learn about your lighting ratios, about color temperature, learn to meter, learn to conceptualize the shot before you push the button. And it doesn't have to be a long, arduous thing. It's the kind of thing that if you just pay attention to what you're doing, in 5, 10 seconds, the light bulb goes off, and it's right there. Personally, I had a rule for myself, shooting 4 or 5, and it was the 6 Polaroid rule. If I couldn't fix the lighting and get the situation right in 6 Polaroids, I went on to the next shot. Okay. Because the shot didn't want to be made. And I know some photographers, they would shoot 20, 40 sheets of 4 by 5 Polaroid. They were just beating a dead horse. And finally, you know, lunch comes, the, the client's upset, the, the model or whoever you're, you're shooting is upset because things aren't happening. At that point, you just got to say, it's time to move on. Right. Pretend you're having a brainstorm and just put the guy over by the window light and put a reflector up there and just start shooting because you've got to show somebody an image. Sometimes that, those are the best shots because you, you just drop all the garbage and, and just start over. Uh, there's nothing wrong with starting over. No, there's no rule in photography that says it absolutely has to be done this way. Right. You have the luxury of change. That's funny. You said something there that I've read in a couple places where you said about pretend like you had a brainstorm. I've read a couple articles in like the Joe McNally book and a couple other people that we've had on the show. They say about that. It's you know part of the thing is really important is making the client and even the talent and stuff behind the camera feel that you're in complete control. And uh-huh. probably the other part of doing what you're saying is that it adds that confidence back to them. Have you worked with people that have used that as like a specific I guess, psychological tool as well? This is something that I learned just from seeing the mistakes others made. Probably the best thing I learned more than about the lighting that each one of these guys used. It's how they relate to their crew, how they interact with the clients, how they interact with the the people that are relevant to the shoot or on the set. That is the most important thing, more so than, you know, lights that work. The one thing I try and tell people in my photo assistance boot camp is that if you're a wallflower in this industry, this is the wrong industry to be in. You need to be able to learn to communicate with people, but more importantly, 
you need to learn to listen and watch for people's interactions and body language and and that's you're going to learn more that way than anything else this really is a communications industry more so than you know just a visual or graphics industry you really need to be able to communicate and listen effectively to really get anywhere now you mentioned your uh, boot camp mm-hmm. and that this is some of the stuff that's from from your boot camp what are some of the other topics that Someone can expect from attending a boot camp just for photo assistance. Well, the photo assistant boot camp really came from numerous emails and one-on-one requests I've had from photographers, rental studios, digital techs, just other people in the industry. Because of digital, they don't teach traditional photography skills in too many of the photo schools anymore. In fact, there was a woman I met who graduated from Parsons with a master's degree in photography that said that she shot her whole senior thesis and all through school with a Canon, uh, was it a Rebel XT or something like that? Right. I said, well, didn't they cover 4x5 or film cameras? Yeah, but it was too hard, so I just shot it on my digital SLR and told them I shot it on a 4x5. <laughs> oh, no. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, what you don't realize is that digital is just another tool. Sure, anyone and their brother can now pick up a camera and point and shoot and get a properly exposed, in-focus picture. But there's more to it being a photographer than just pushing the button. The people that do photography well on a regular basis are the ones that have not only developed their eye, but have also developed their skill set. And that's just not using a camera, but also lighting and knowing which tools are the right tools for the job. In our photo assistant boot camp to address the concerns of the photographers and the rental studios who got tired of having to provide tech support to these people calling up and saying, well, how do I load the film camera? How do I turn on the strobe pack? And, and worse yet is these rental companies are getting back pro photo packs, which range from, well, now they're about $8,500, $9,000. They're getting broken. Ooh. You know, mm. they're, they're, yeah, exactly. they're renting out Mac PowerBooks laptops for digital shoots, and they're coming back trashed you know, looking like they got run over by a 10-ton truck. What we do in the, in the boot camp is I basically try and cram all the information that you would otherwise learn in the first six months to a year of photo assisting. I cram that into you in two days. Wow. And the very first thing you learn is, as a photo assistant, you do not sit down. So the first thing I do the day before is have all the chairs removed from the rental studio that we shoot at. Nice. <laughs> there's, there's nothing to lean against. There's nothing to sit down on. Tables are folded up, chairs are removed. The only thing that's in the room is the equipment and the set cart. Hopefully everyone that takes the workshop has already read the ebook, How to Be a Photo Assistant, that we email them right after sign-up. And I survey everyone how many people have actually read it. And inevitably, only half the class in two weeks has managed to read a 28-page book. Right. Uh, and I say then, I said, you've just told me which half of the class is actually serious about what they're doing. And of course, everyone's like, oh, no, no, I'm serious. But we get into, you know, how to, how to go about writing a resume, billing, writing an invoice, how to go about uh, finding work, what sources, resources to use to develop your list of photographers or potential clients for yourself to go assist for. We cover bronze color, pro photo, dynolite strobe packs, 
We go over different types of soft boxes. Shimera is one of our sponsors, and we have so much Shimera equipment. We go over the strip banks, the medium banks, the soft boxes. Shimera's got this beautiful light, the uh, Octa Plus, which is uh, kind of a counterpart to the industry's favorite, the Ellen Chrome Octabank. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just falling in love with that Octa Plus. It's an incredible light, and we get everyone taking all the equipment apart, putting it back together, learning how to use the strobes. We go over medium format cameras all the medium format film cameras that are still even used today, in many instances, they're used with digital backs. But since 30% of the industry is still shooting film, it's imperative that people know how to load a film back. So many people do not know how to load film. So we go over loading the Mamiya RZ, the Mamiya 645, the Hasselblad V-Series, the Hasselblad H-Series, the Contact 645, uh, the Pentax 67, I think that pretty much covers it. Those are the main cameras, medium format, that people have been using for the last 20, 30 years. You spend a lot of time talking about light control and when to use which type of modifier. There's no set rule as to when you would use any specific light modifier. It's all situation dependent. And again, photographers have their own way of doing things. We go over the soft boxes, the grid spots, uh, the molas, which is like the beauty dish, bring in Ari hot lights and show people how to uh, work with those. Uh, Kino flows, which are the uh, four-foot bulb, four bulbs across. Kino flows were really hot at the end of the 90s and into the turn of the century. Not quite as much uh, light output now for digital in terms of continuous light source, but they're still used quite a bit. So we go over Kino's mixing light sources, so mixing Kino flow with strobe, mixing strobe with Ari 1K, 2K hot lights. Mm. In some situations, I'm at a rental studio that has a large movie lights, HMIs. So uh, at times, we're able to delve into that, and we have access to 4, 6, and 12K HMIs, at which point you have to learn the safety measures of working with a light that's using three-phase current and 240 volts. It's all about, well, set etiquette, the proper way to handle situations, but it's more about learning the equipment, learning how to work with it, and just the technical aspects of things. Something as simple as, you know, learning the proper way to coil up a head extension or an electrical cord. You don't wrap it around your elbow and your hand. You know, right. there's, there's actually a streaming media tutorial we're going to be uploading this weekend onto the site to show people how to coil cords. It's the simple things that you never think of that make the difference as an assistant, as a photographer, learning the lighting stuff. Those are lighting workshops uh, that we're also developing because there's been such a demand for them. But in the two days of the assistance boot camp, it's more about learning what the equipment is and the basic guidelines of it. Uh, We also go over flash meters, color temperature meters, we do a, just a basic setup of how to light a white seamless background, you know, what the light ratio should be front to back, what it means to measure the return on the subject, you know, how to actually adjust the light so you've got no more than one-tenth of a stop fall-off head to toe. If a photo assistant or lighting technician can work with lights to that kind of precision, you're going to be working every single day. Right. You know? And it's, it's not hard. It's just, it's just being aware, to, again, learning to use the tools. Sounds like a great opportunity. Now, the other thing that I was wondering if you would just talk a little bit about is your community that you built kind of around photoassistant.net. Want to tell us what you're up to there and how, how that's going for you? <laughs> the site has actually been up for 10 years, and uh, it's really taken off in the last three to four, specifically in the last three when we started teaching our digital tech workshops. 
so many people were looking for training on digital capture software, and there seemed to be a lot of differences in the quality of people calling themselves digital tech. So we created a digital tech workshop, which we primarily concentrate on the, the Phase 1 Capture 1 Pro software and the uh, Phase 1 digital backs. But we also incorporate the uh, Canon digital SLRs, the 5D, Mark II, the Mark III. And again, the first day we talk about the software, every single aspect of it, digital capture, digital archiving, color management. And then on the second day, we go over the cameras and put everything through a, uh, a live digital capture session. Develop these workshops to the point now where we're actually bringing in models, hair and makeup, and doing a real photo shoot. So it's kind of trial by fire. You're coming in the first day with very little to no knowledge about this stuff. And by the end of the second day, we've already put you through your first digital capture session. Depending on how much coffee you've consumed, Monday morning, there's no reason you shouldn't be able to go out and apply what you learned in those last two days. In the site, I've tried to keep along the lines of educating people and kind of being an advocate for photographers, assistants, and and digital technicians because for the longest time, photo assistants have been the lowest paid and hardest working aspect of the commercial photo industry. And while many people may not realize it, the day rate for a photo assistant in 1976 was $175 for a 10-hour day. The day rate that certain magazines today are willing to pay for editorial shoots is 175 a day. Really? <laughs> so what basically these, these corporations are telling us is that the cost of living has gone up for everyone else in the world except the commercial photo industry. Right. You know, one of the things we've tried to do uh, is get people to stand up for themselves and say, listen, this is the skill set that I'm coming to your shoot with. I deserve to be paid this. So many times we hear, oh, there's no money in the budget. I can tell you for a fact that there is always money in the budget to pay a high-quality digital tech, hair and makeup person, photo assistant. If you're good, they will pay for you. And I found early on as an assistant that the minute I started raising my day rate as an assistant, I worked for better people, worked on better photo shoots, and subsequently the higher I kept raising my day rate, the more I worked and the better the jobs were. And every photographer falls into this trap of, and photo assistant, of, oh, well, I'll, I'll do this job for, for cheap, and they'll remember me because I took such good care of them. You know, they'll, they'll give me that big money job the next time. For every photographer listening, I guarantee you that will never happen because when they have the budget for that big money job, they're going to hire the big money photographer. Photo assistants don't work for free. If your time is worth something, you need to get paid for it. If it's 50 bucks, if it's 75 bucks, you get paid for it. If you're making coffee, if you're sweeping floors, if you're doing dishes, if you're walking their dog, if you're picking up their dry cleaning, which I never endorse, (laughs) you know, indentured servitude is not a photo assistant make. Get paid for your time. The first guy I worked with, I told him I had no experience. I'll work for free. He said, don't you ever tell anyone that. He said, there's absolutely no reason for you to not get paid to show up. He said... You may not have any experience today, but by the end of the day, you're going to have experience, and tomorrow you're going to come in and work even harder. Always get paid, and always get the terms of payment before you accept the job. You know, photo assistants, it's not parties. It's certainly not the 80s of uh, parties, cocaine, and excess to all hours of the night. You know, after the shoot, you go home to your studio apartment, and you eat your tuna fish or macaroni and cheese. Because you are just exhausted. You put in a a 12, 14-hour day, and your call time many times at the studio was 7, 8 o'clock in the morning. It's not uncommon to get out of the studio 8 o'clock at night. 
if you're on a fashion advertising shoot or some other shoot, you're there at 7 in the morning and you leave at 2 in the morning. And you may do that 10 days in a row. Wow. You know, the perks are you get a car service home at 2 in the morning. By the time you get home, you've got four hours to sleep and turn around and do the same thing. And go back. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, James. Uh, that was really great insight on what it takes to be a photo assistant, and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us this evening. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks so much, guys. Well, that's all we have for this episode of Light Source, the brightest podcast on the internet. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode and all the other Light Source episodes at the website studiolighting.net. And you can also send us an email comment at studiolighting at gmail.com when you can send us comments, questions, or just images that you'd like us to see. And if you really want to get involved with some of the other listeners to the show, you can head over to the LightSource Flickr group at www.flickr.com slash groups slash LightSource. You can post your images and get feedback on your photography as well as seeing the things that we're taking pictures of. And as always, if you missed any of these links, our quick outro here, you can find all of that and more at www.studiolighting.net. Till next time. Bye-bye. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.